I have never heard anything that lyrical, rhythmic, and deeply theological at the same time. <laughs> well, it felt like it was John Piper with soul. Um, I, uh, hello, Summit RDU. Welcome at all of our campuses here. Um, we had the most incredible night on Tuesday night for those of you that um, weren't able to join us. Uh, we had a vision night uh, where we just kind of laid out what God has done over the last year and where we believe things are going. Um, I prayed all week that God would just visit us very powerfully, that just like in Acts chapter 4, when they got together, the place where they were meeting was shaken and a mighty wind blew through it. Um, God did all those things this week, just not on Tuesday night, but I'm still counting it um, as all about our vision night. Um, it, was, it, was, it was incredible. Um, you know, we, uh, I'm going to take just a minute here, just a couple minutes, and recap a few of the things because I know that some of you weren't able to be there, and I think you ought to understand this, uh, what's going on. For the last nine years, this church has marched to a couple of drumbeats. Um, one of those has been that we would do, um, by the grace of God, whatever it took to reach our community. About nine years ago, 300 people gathered together in a room much smaller than this one, and uh, they covenanted to do whatever it took to reach their community. Uh, this group of 300 gave up their preferences. They gave up their style. They gave up the name of their church. Uh, the Homestead Heights Baptist Church became the Summit Church. They uh, would end up giving up the piece of property that they had worshipped on, been married in, raised their children in, um, and move into a high school, and then down here to Briar Creek, and now this weekend in five different locations around the Triangle. God has blessed their faith. And God has blessed their sacrifices immensely because this weekend, that group of 300 is nearly 20 times the size that it was as we will have somewhere around 6,000 people here on the weekend. Just out of curiosity because, well, not out of curiosity, but because I want to honor you. Um, if you were part of that original 300 at any of our campuses right now, would you raise your hand? Just put your hand up. We honor you guys. The other, the, the other drumbeat uh, that we have, have marched to is that we believe that God's power is for those people who um, are aligned with his purposes. We believe that those people who are in touch with the purposes of God have open access to the power of God. And so for the last nine years, we have, in the words of uh, William Carey, expected great things of God and then attempted great things for God. We have always desired to do not according to our abilities, but beyond our abilities, believing that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And this year is going to be no exception to that. We are going to stretch and ask God to do through us and in us more than we could possibly imagine. I wanted to take, again, just a minute to recap a few of the things that we saw God do last year. I, I don't, by the way, phrase that in false humility as if, hey, you know, we'll sort of give God credit for it. We recognize, anybody that's close to us recognizes, these are not things that we have done for God, but things we have experienced God doing through us. Uh, let me give you just a few of them. First of all, um, international church planning is something we talk about a lot that's very important. In the last year, the last 12 months, we have sent out 80 international church planners from this church. When I say sent out, I don't mean short-term mission trips. I mean people who have lived here, members of our church who have uprooted and moved overseas somewhere to go into a place where there is no church. As a result of these 80, that brings our current total of people who are members who are serving outside of this country to currently 150 of us. 
Now, we talk about unreached people groups here at the summit. I want you to get this. There are 30 unreached people groups, 30 unreached people groups through these 150 that now have some access to the gospel through the witness of our Summit Church members there. Would you let that sink in for a minute? There are 30 unreached people groups that had no access to the gospel that now are having the gospel proclaimed because of, of, of brothers and sisters of ours in this church and are living there. Isn't that something to give God praise about? North American church planting. In the last eight months alone, we have seen more than 40 of our members uproot from Raleigh-Durham and go to live uh, in a location to plant a church outside of Raleigh-Durham in the United States. That's not including the staff who went. Uh, we have 40 regular people with regular jobs who have uprooted to go and do that. And we announced on Tuesday night that our next church plant, which will be set to launch in about eight months, is going to be in, drumroll, Greensboro, North Carolina. Greensboro, North Carolina is where we're going to be planting. Uh, you guys in Greensboro, awesome. Um, we, uh, we, it's a great influential city, and uh, we have, by the way, we announced this on Tuesday. We already have a team of 17 that are committed to go. Um, I didn't know people were so excited about leaving our church, but evidently we just threw out the opportunity and they're gone. Uh, all right, so that's North American church planting. Um, new campuses. Uh, we, we, we plant new campuses around the triangle. The last 12 months or so, we've launched three new campuses. Now, people always want to know, do those things actually work? All right, well, okay, a couple things. One, um, last week at our North Raleigh campus, which was planted about a year ago, they had people sitting on the floor in one of their services. Um, so yes, things are going fairly well there. They have two services and they're overflowing. Our, our Briar Creek South venue that we opened up here just a few months ago, um, in a room that seats about 420, they had 521 last week uh, in the Briar Creek South venue. I don't know if that's legal, but, but, but that's what happened last week. Um, and today we are launching our Cary campus. Uh, so Cary, uh, good to see you guys. Uh, they are meeting uh, this morning in two services at Cary High School. Uh, by the way, they just gave raucous applause to that line over at Cary. Uh, why don't we join them in that? Because we're excited about them being there. Uh, we talk a lot about ministry here to um, our cities in five different arenas that we believe are areas of great need. We call it the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, and the high school dropout. Um, we, uh, I don't have time to give you hardly any of this except for just two or three things. We have been involved with over 75 refugees in the area, displaced from other countries who've been moved here. Our members have been involved in, their, in about 75 of their lives. Our members and small groups have been a part of the rehabilitation of 15 prisoners, 15 prisoners that we have, um, are, are in the process of seeing them integrated into society. Our small groups and members have been a key part of ministering to over 500 unwed mothers. We have seen many of them trust Christ, one of, them, one of whom will be baptized here this weekend. And we've seen a lot of these women make the decision to have their baby rather than to abort it. And here's one that I think is particularly special. Summit families this year alone have adopted 45 children from 11 different foreign countries. 45 children from 11 countries. If you would think about the significance of that for just a minute, this weekend, our church family has 45 children in it from the last year from 11 different countries whose lives are changed forever. We got the most incredible call just a few weeks ago from an agency here in Durham that said we have an eight-year-old who is in an emergency situation and needs a family to adopt them. 
Is there anybody in your church that would do it? The first question, of course, that we asked was, why are you calling us? And they said, because we know in our city that you guys love the orphan at your church. And so we threw this out there to, to people and just said, hey, I know this is kind of, you know, all of a sudden, but within just a few days, there was a Summit family that said, that's something that we can do. And they took into their home this eight-year-old boy and have adopted them as their son. Uh, and he is now a part, uh, he's here this weekend, he's a part of our church family. Um, because they understand that pure religion is, James 1.27, to love the fatherless and the widow and to, to give ourselves to them. On top of everything else, because of what God is doing, we've been recognized again this year as one of the fastest growing churches in America. Folks, we have been blessed greatly, but with great power and great privilege comes great responsibility. I'm not sure if that's a Bible verse or a quote from Spider-Man, but either way it's true. So after sharing and celebrating that and a lot more stories like that, we voted as a church to adopt a budget of $7,312,224.14. Okay, that just got some of your attention, didn't it? Now, some of you are like, well, is that possible? $7 million? Yes, it's possible for two reasons, all right? Number one, number one, it's a 16% increase from last year. And every year for the last four years, our, our, we have grown in our revenue by about 20%. So yes, it's possible for that reason. A second reason that it's possible is, let me just do you a quick math that our church financial officer showed me. Um, we, we, we did a little research on our area here and kind of figured out that the average household income in our area, okay, you, you math people ready for this, is $49,000 a year, average household income. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, well, I don't make $49,000 a year. I get that, okay? Some of you make more, some of you make less. That's why we call it an average, okay? So the average household income in our area, $49,000. Um, last year, there were uh, 2,650 families who gave to the Summit Church. 2,650 families who on record gave. That doesn't even include, by the way, all the people that come and don't give anything, which based on what we are, are based on our analysis, is about half. So it's all these people that get up when I say, you know, amen at the end of the sermon and, and duck out before, you know, we know what you're doing, by the way, when, when that happens, okay? But that, that doesn't even account them. If you take $49,000 as the average, okay, and those people, just the ones who gave, tithe, just tithe, which is kind of the, you know, kind of your baseline. If just that, then our budget or our income next year would be $12,985,000. Okay, and that's just kind of baseline. So yes, it's possible, by the way. My favorite part of the study that we did, average household income in Cary, $83,000, all right? So uh, Cary Campus, all right? We got big, you know, big expectations for you people, all right? And even better that we found was the average per person income in Cary, per person, like counting the kids. Average per person income in Cary, 30, well, let me find this. $37,833. That means the little kids in Cary make more than most of you young professionals. <laughs> All right, so be encouraged. Be encouraged. So anyway, listen. Yes, this is reasonable. It's reasonable. But listen, the reality is we need to exceed this dramatically. Because the more people we reach, the more we become acutely aware of the tremendous need that people are in for the gospel all around us. And so we cannot be satisfied with what is reasonable. We've got to ask God for the remarkable because this is a real thing that we're in. And so I am saying this to you, one, because we are a church family who have adopted this together. 
That's all I've got time to share. You ought to go on to our vision night and listen to the whole thing so you can get more of the big picture about this. But if you are a part of this church, this is our mission. If this is your church, you should not be a spectator. And many of you need to get off the sidelines and get involved. You should invest in this with your time. You should financially support it, and you should be a part of turning this vision into reality. So at all of our campuses, listen, if you agree with this and you affirm it and you're excited about it, if you would say amen. 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 All right. Okay. All right. If you got your Bible, I want you to take it out and open it to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. As you're turning there, the title of our series is Gospel. And we are spending several weeks in John 15 getting a picture of what it looks like really to be changed by Jesus. John 15 gives you the essential components of the Christian life. One of the things that Jesus says in John 15 is that if you are alive in him, you will produce fruits. See that there in verse 8 that we read earlier? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Bearing fruit proves that you are alive. If you are not bearing fruit, that means something is wrong, what Jesus is saying. Now, I've given you lots of analogies in this series, but here is another one. Uh, when I was in college, uh, a good friend of mine, um, one of my best friends, was a truly disgusting person. Um, he uh, lived off campus in a house with some other guys, and that house was a health hazard. It ought to have had, like, tape around it that nobody could go in, because it was, it was truly disgusting. Those guys, you go in their house, and they would have cereal bowls, you know, half full of milk and, and uneaten cereal, not from that morning, but from days before. That you just, it just, and of course you know what that, that smelled like. You would go in and, and uh, all of their dishes were dirty. Not some of their dishes, all of their dishes. So whenever they needed a new dish, they would take one out of the stack, they kind of scrape the mold off of it, they would wash it, and then that's what they would use. Uh, one of my friends, my good friend, he, um, in his room, he had invented something, says he invented it, he called it the pile system. Um, four piles in his room. He said, all right, see, these are the clothes that I've washed. That was pile number one. He says, but you know, after you wear something one time, it's not like it's dirty. Right, so you can wear it again. So pile number one are things that have been worn one time. Pile number, th or pile number two was things you've been worn one time. Pile number three was things you'd worn be between four and five times. He said because by that time they're starting to get, you know, on the, on the south end. And so you got to start thinking about washing them. He says, but then that goes from what I play, that's what I wear when I play basketball. And so they go in pile number four and that means it's time to be washed. But his rule was, and this is what he thought was genius, is after it sits there for more than a week, it automatically upgrades a pile. Um, that was the pile system. Kind of the capstone for him was, uh, for, for, for all these guys though, is they had this cat in their house who couldn't seem to get the litter box concept down. And so, it, I mean, it was, it was disgusting. And you walk in that, that, that house and you would just be assaulted by this aroma. Um, well, one, my, my friend's mother, about once a semester, would come up, and she would come in with her rubber gloves and her Ajax and napalm or whatever, and she would just cleanse that thing from top to bottom. I used to go see them on Sunday afternoon, and when I would walk in their house, um, when she had been there, instead of, you know, this smell of putrid milk and, and, uh, and cat poop and all that stuff, um, I would be greeted by Ajax and lemon smell and, and stuff. If I had walked in on a Sunday afternoon and it smelled like mold and milk and cat poop and my friend had said, hey, my mom got here on Friday, I would have said to him, you're lying because if your mom had really come, it wouldn't smell like this because her presence makes a difference. 
What Jesus is saying in John 15, 8 is essentially the same thing. You will prove that I am present in your life by certain things that are going to be true of you. And if those things aren't there, then I'm not there. You, you get that? So what we've introduced to you is a tool that will help you understand what spiritual growth actually looks like. We've, we've given it to you in the version of a wheel. Let me explain it to you up here. All right, Phil, these guys will put it up here. Um, the wheel, at the center of the wheel is the love for God that we have. That's what the great commandment is. We love God and we love others. All right, so that's here. We say that, that you express that, according to John 15, you express that in five different ways that, that kind of look like a wheel. All right, way number one is the word. The word, prayer and Bible study. We talked about that last week. You're growing in that. Way number two we're going to talk about today is the development of godly character. Way number three is, is, is being in community with the people of God. Way number four is you're growing in your evangelism and mission, sharing Christ. Way number five is generosity. And those are things that begin to happen as you grow in the gospel. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that if you don't really love God, that you can fix that by just getting busy doing those things. That's what we call artificial change. I, I said it's like stapling roses onto a rose bush. You staple them on there, it doesn't make it alive. It just, you know, in fact, it's kind of ridiculous, right? So those things don't change your heart, but if your heart has been changed, you do those things. So you say, well, what changes our heart? How do we develop a love for God? Some, some of you are like, I, I'd like to love God, but I, I just don't. Right? Well, that's what the gospel, John 15 is. The gospel is what transforms your heart so that you begin to love God. Love for God in you is produced by dwelling on the love of God for you. And as you abide in the love of God for you, love for God grows in you, and then you begin to do those things naturally. Spiritual fruit just happens when you're in the gospel. You see, the key to growing spiritually, we have said, is not mastering a to-do list of things that you're supposed to do for God. That's what everybody always thinks. It's like, some of you, all your life in church, that's what you've heard, is this is what you've got to do for God to be spiritual. Spiritual growth, real spiritual growth, does not happen from a to-do list of what you're to do for God, but by standing in awe of what God has done for you. And when your soul has been captivated by what God has done for you, all these things, the fruits of righteousness, will grow out of you as naturally as grapes on a grapevine. Today we're going to talk about godly character and how that develops Jesus introduces it in John 15, but I'm going to take you to Galatians chapter 5, where we're going to go a little bit deeper because Paul takes this concept and he kind of fleshes it out and shows you what it looks like. So if you hold your finger there in John 15, I want you to flip over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is to the right of John in your Bible, all right? It's one of the, what we call the epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I've told you how to remember that, by the way, haven't I? G-E-P-C. Go eat pork chops if you understand the meaning of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right. Galatians 5.16. Galatians 5.16 is where we're going to begin here. The development of godly character. Here we go. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, says Paul, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, competitiveness, or selfish ambition, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. To me, like it sounds like the scene on Franklin Street every, every Friday night. Yeah, I, I understand. But by the way, listen, avoid the temptation to read that list and think about them out there. Because this is not them out there. These things are all present in our hearts. Okay, so don't think out there. Think right here. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's what we're going to see from these eight verses. Number one, we're going to see a description of two different plants with two different fruits. Number two, we're going to see a command that we are given. And then number three, we're going to see a warning about a lifelong struggle. That's where we're going. A description, a command, and a warning. So first of all, number one, a description of two different plants with two different fruits. The first one, the first plant, Paul calls the flesh. Now when Paul says the flesh, he doesn't simply mean the body. Flesh means the sinful nature. It is our hearts when we are separated from the life of God. See, we were created for God, and when we are not connected to God, our lives are filled with all kinds of dysfunctions and deviant cravings like the ones on that list. Impurity, sensuality, sorcery, strife, fits of anger, envy, drunkenness, orgies, etc. Those are all the fruits that grow out of our separation from God. We always think of these as like the ultimate sins, orgies, drunkenness. Yes, they are sins, but they are the result of a much greater sin. And that is worshiping something outside of God. You see, to not live for God is like dragging a wagon without wheels. Without wheels, you can move the wagon around from point A to point B. But in the process, you end up beating it up, scarring it up, and tearing it up. You see, without God in the right place in your life, you can do a lot of things. You can get married, you can have a family, you can have a career, you can have friends. But what happens is it ends up tearing your soul apart because something that God was supposed to be in your life, you actually turn and begin to look at other things to do, and that ends up disintegrating your entire life. For example, many girls are not in right relationship with God, and so they crave a guy's attention. That guy's attention becomes like God to them. They need a guy's attention to feel like they're worthy or they're happy, so they give away their bodies in impurity because they only feel like they're worth anything when a guy is paying attention to them. That impurity, see, that impurity comes out of a craving that comes from not being in a right relationship with God. Some people worship money. But what's the, what's the fruit of the worship of money? We'll look back at that list, right? How about, how about strife? You ever notice people who worship money always have this strife, fits of anger when their stocks aren't going right or people are letting them down? Anxiety? Those are the fruits of the worship of money. Some people worship their spouse's attention, and so they become codependent. That leads to bitterness. That leads to strife in the home. Some people crave the attention of others. They crave the attention of others. I, I've told you this before, but I'm a certified expert in this one. So much of my life has been messed up because I worship the approval of other people, and it caused me to have the most sinful emotions in my heart. I mean, I, I would be jealous of other people, I would desire their downfall, even delight in their downfall. It's distorted some of my decisions. 
It's driven me to hurt people that I love the most, whether it's friends I was jealous of or, 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 or when I overwork. I have a tendency to overwork sometimes, and the reason is because I want to be successful. The reason I want to be successful is because I need to be successful so people will admire me and talk about me, and I want their approval because I worship it, and that leads me to hurt my family. All these things come out of this false worship that I have. It makes me lie. That's what compels me to lie sometimes. You, you, you're like, why do you, I lie the same reason you lie. I, I lie because I want people to think more of me than I actually am. So what, what do I do? I tend to exaggerate my accomplishments and minimize my failures. Why? Because I know that if I can be something that I'm not, that more people will admire me, and that's what I worship. Those are all fruits of the flesh. And these are things that are driven by the absence of God in our lives. You see, when Paul wants to summarize the entire list, you see this there in verse 16, he uses a Greek word. You got your Greek New Testament? Right? He uses a Greek word that is a very important word. The Greek word that summarizes the entire list is the word epithumia. Epithumia. Now, we translate that word into English as lust. When I say lust, you think, <laughs> pervert. Okay. I say lust, you think sex, but lust, epithemia doesn't mean just, just sex. It's a deep soul craving. It's a craving for these things that we put in the place of God, and that soul craving leads to the rest of that list. Hatred, strife, drunkenness, orgies, the boredom that leads to pornographic addiction, sensuality, craving the attention of somebody who's not your spouse, and the flirtation that leads to and all these other sinful captivities grow out of that epithumia. So see, the law, Paul says, the law, or in other words, being commanded to change, the law can't help that problem. If your problem is that you don't love God and that you're not in right relationship to God, the law, or being commanded to change, you know, cut that out, stop it, don't do that anymore, that can't really help because our core problem is that we don't have the right desires to God. So being commanded to do loving things for God doesn't help for a couple of reasons. One, Paul says while it changes our behavior, while the law might change our behavior, it doesn't actually change our hearts. And what I, what I, what I described for you the first week is that, is that, that was like, it's like bending a piece of metal. And you guys remember, I brought this big, thick piece of metal up here on stage and just bent it here in front of your eyes. Y'all remember that? It was awesome. Uh, not really. Um, but I told you that if you bent a piece of metal, unless you heat it first, so that it becomes malleable. If you heat it, you can do whatever you want to with it, but if you don't heat it and you bend a piece of metal, one of two things will happen. When you take your hands off of it, it'll pop back up to the original shape, or you'll bend it so that it breaks. And I explained to you that when you and I are commanded to change by the preaching of the law, stop this, don't do that, one of those two things happens to us. When the external pressures are gone, we end up going back to our natural state which is why some of you are different around this crowd than you are around other crowds. Because this crowd, you conform to social norms here, and then when that's gone, bam, you're back up to your original state and your original desires. Or you break spiritually, where you just say, I've had it. I hate always being told to do this and do that, and I'm just exhausted. And you break spiritually. The law can't change that heart. The other reason the law doesn't work, Paul will explain is because we end up commandeering religion to serve our sinful flesh. I'll give you a great example of this. I've used this story before, but I think it helps, helps give you a picture of this. Um, true story of a guy who was um, on a college campus, was very promiscuous. He had a reputation of just being a, a, a total playboy. 
And um, on, you know, when, he, when he slept with girls, as it is for many guys, it was about more than lust. It was about identity. He gained an identity. He was kind of a man's man because he slept with all these girls. Well, the guy goes through his junior year a religious conversion experience. He gets involved in a Bible study. Man, he repudiates his sin. He repents. He becomes a leader in their campus ministry. But there was just something kind of that graded you about this guy. He, whenever you were around him, he always had to be right. He always had to show you that his opinion was more insightful than yours. He wanted to be the guy who the focus was on. He wanted to be the leader in the campus ministry. Do you see what actually happened with that guy? What he did was he traded one means to power, sex, to another means of power, religion. It wasn't actually conversion to Christ. It was using Christ as a means to his original idol of worship, which was power. See, when Karl Marx makes a statement like the quest for religion, or excuse me, religious sentiment and the quest for power often go hand in hand, he's exactly right. Many people commandeer religion and use it in the service of their sinful flesh. Now, here's the irony. Christians, a lot of times, are blind to those kinds of sins. I say sin, and in the church, we think about, you know, drunkenness, sexually immoral, orgies. But you see that Paul puts jealousy, strife, gossiping, self-centeredness, competitiveness in that same list? These are every bit the fruits of the flesh that drunkenness and orgies are. But think how much different we think about this. I mean, you know, imagine that we were talking about a guy here at the church, and we're like, man, that guy would make a great Christian leader. We ought to put him in leadership in our church. The only problem is he has a drunken orgy every Friday night. <laughs> I mean, like, that's totally ridiculous. Yet we can point to church leadership teams all over the country that are dominated by strife, division, competitiveness. Those things, we just kind of turn a blind eye to and be like, well, that's just, you know, that guy's just ambitious. No, that's a fruit of the flesh. And it comes from worshiping something besides God. So the law doesn't change our hearts. And while the law might curb our sinful behavior, it actually feeds on other parts. See? I'll give you one more example of this. Religion a lot of times feeds a natural xenophobia that we have. You know what xenophobia is? It's kind of like the despising of other cultures. Xenoph racism. Why? Because we think that one of the many things that makes us superior to other cultures and other races is the fact that we got the right religion. We're right, not like those backwards um, barbarians. And so when people make a statement like religion has caused some of the worst problems in the world, I tend to agree with them. But see, they're talking about religion. They're not talking about gospel. You see, there's a totally different type of plant that Paul talks about, which produces a completely different kind of fruit. This plant has its roots in the gospel. It walks by the Spirit, Paul says. The gospel is the story of how you and I deserve the wrath of God. But instead of giving us wrath, God in his love emptied himself of his divine glory and came to earth to take our place on a cross, to die in a place and to rescue us. Looking at the cross, listen, crushes our pride because it shows us what we deserve. Looking at the cross ignites in our hearts a passion for God because we see how good he is, what he did to save us, and what a treasure he is. It is impossible to really look at the cross and remain proud and self-centered. So when you abide in the gospel, when you plant yourself in the gospel, it produces a totally different set of things than religion does. And that's Paul's second list. Love. 
Love, love is the Greek word agape. It just means you have a general love for people, not because of what they can do for you, just, just because you're full of love, joy. That's the Greek word kara. And it just means a delight that you have in God that's not dependent on your circumstances. You're just overjoyed at God's presence in your life and what a treasure he is. Peace, that's the Greek word irene, which we would say Irene. Which, by the way, why you would ever name a hurricane Irene is beyond me. All right, peace, it just means that you have the sense that in all situations, even bad ones, that there is a loving God who is in full control and his presence with you is all that you need. Patience, that's my favorite Greek word, one of them, makrothumia. I love it because it just sounds like you're irritated when you say that word. Patience. It just means that you actually, you forbear with others when they disappoint you because you know how you've disappointed God and you're patient. Kindness means you just generally have good in your heart that flows out to people. Goodness is a Greek word that means integrity. It means that you're just good all the way down. It means if we peel back the layers of your heart, there's not secret agendas and hidden motives and kind of hatreds and jealousies. You're just good all the way through. It's like an onion. Just keep peeling and it goes all the way down faithfulness faithfulness is a greek word that literally means loyalty it means you're not an opportunist it means you are principle driven it means that you are loyal to gospel and to people gentleness that's a greek word proutos which literally means humility it means that you're not sitting around thinking about yourself all the time you're thinking about god you're thinking about the good of others self-control that means that your bodily passions have been brought under a greater purpose so whether we're talking about sex or food or the desire to get even or, or the desire for recognition, all those things are brought under the greater purpose. These are the fruits of the gospel. And Paul ends his list by saying, listen, verse 23, against such things there is no law. You know what he's saying by that? You don't need a law for that kind of person. If somebody's dominated by love, joy, peace, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, you don't have to make laws for them. That's the essence of a good person, right? As Paul says, if the gospel has produced that in you, there's no more need for the law of God because God doesn't have to make laws for people who are filled in their hearts with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control because, see, see, they have become the law of God. They love God, they love others, and those eight ways are how they express that. That's what the gospel produces, See, it produces godly character. So that's your description of two different plants with two different fruits. Here's your command, number two. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, let's be honest for just a minute with each other. What's it mean to walk by the Spirit? How many of you hear that and just in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm not really sure what that means. Walk by the Spirit. I used to think, oh, yeah, I heard it all my life growing up. And I think, I mean, so does that mean like every hour you stop and think, I need spirit power? So I got a spirit, give me power, and he'd kind of blow you up like a spiritual balloon, and you go out and work in the spirit, but next hour you better remember it and do it again, blow yourself back up, and, and do, does that, no. That's always what I thought it meant, but it's not what it means. I showed you this last week. What does the spirit do, according to Jesus? John 16, 14, he glorifies Jesus. So to walk by the spirit means to walk with Jesus large in your heart. The, gospel, the, the Holy Spirit makes the gospel real to you. The Holy Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, means that you have a felt sense of the truths of the gospel in your life. And as you abide in that gospel, as you're walking by the Spirit, then you are filled with all those fruits. Paul, in Galatians, you go back to chapter 3, Paul says, if you want to be filled by the Spirit, abide in the gospel. And as the 
the doctrines of the gospel, the news of his generosity, and your depra- as those things fill your heart, then love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, they pop out of you as naturally as grapes on a grapevine. Can I teach you two theological words? They're kind of deep, but you really need to know them. So I want you to write these down. It's very important. Two theological words. Number one, justification. Justification is the act by which God declares you righteous in Christ. It comes from the great exchange. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you were condemned to die. He gives you his righteousness as a gift, gift righteousness. Justification, it's a legal declaration. That's theological word number one. Theological word number two, sanctification. Sanctification means literally to make holy. It is the process by which your heart begins to desire godly things. Love, joy, peace, faithfulness, that's sanctification. It's the process of you becoming holy. Now, we always talk about those things like they are separate, and they are. Okay, and you, you got to make sure you get this. Justification is a legal declaration that God declares over you in Christ. Sanctification is the process of your heart actually becoming and desiring holiness. So they are separate, but, but they are profoundly related because, watch this, Growth in sanctification comes by dwelling on justification. You will grow in sanctification. You will grow in your desire to be holy the more you reflect on your justification, which is how God made you holy in Christ. Sanctification takes place as you become intimately aware of your justification. See, that's why I got like Martin Luther in his book, uh, or in his lectures on the book of Romans, made this statement, I love this, to progress is always to begin again. In other words, to progress spiritually is always to go back to the beginning. You go back to dwelling on what God has done for you in Christ, and that's how you make progress. Growth and sanctification comes from going deeper in justification. It is only as we grow in our understanding of the fact that God's acceptance of us was not based on how good we are, that we begin to desire what is good. In other words, the only ones who will get better, sanctification, are those who understand that God's approval of them is not dependent on their getting better, justification. (laughs) Your mind just blow? The only ones, this is the irony, the only ones who ever get better spiritually are those who understand that God's acceptance of them is not based on their getting better. The only ones who ever really learn to desire holiness are the ones who understand that God doesn't accept them because they desire holiness. God accepts them because he gave them holiness as a gift. And when you dwell on your justification, your heart begins to desire to be with that God. Dwelling on justification is the most essential component of your sanctification. I would encourage you to write that down and think about it all week. Dwelling on your justification is the most essential component for your sanctification. Now, I hear you. Some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If that's true, if that's true that God's approval of me is not based on how much I'm doing and how I'm doing these things, then we'll lose all our motivation to grow for God, right? Don't you at least say that kind of in your heart? You're like, but if God's not above me waving a stick, like you better desire holiness or I'm going to whack you. If he's not doing that, I'm going to lose all my desire. People will will not be motivated anymore to grow with Christ if they think that God's approval is given to them whether they grow or not. I may answer you the same way John Bunyan answered his critics. John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, put in prison by the Church of England, and they said to him, John, or Bunyan, or whatever they called him, John, you can't go on 
telling everybody that God's approval of them is not based on how they behave. Because if you tell them that God's approval is not based on how they behave, they'll do whatever they want. Bunyan's reply was, no. If I tell them that God's approval of them is based on a gift that is given in Christ, they'll do whatever he wants. You see, it is as you become intimately aware of your justification, you grow in your sanctification. So as you all by the Spirit growing in your love for the gospel, see, spiritual fruit is the natural result. I've used this analogy with you before, but this is, I think, what Paul's getting now. Watch this. Um, I told you spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, is produced the same way that physical fruit, like a child, is produced. Yesterday morning, um, I got up with my children and I made waffles, all right? That's what we did as a family together. I'm not a good cook, so I had to go on the internet, get a, get a recipe, and you, you follow it to the letter. You know, you're like, okay, you need a pinch of salt, you need some baking soda, you need some vanilla, you know, whatever. So I put all that in there. That's a recipe. That's how you make a waffle. Producing a child is not like following a recipe. Given, right? When a man and woman come together to make a child, they're not thinking about the mechanics or the recipe for making that child. The chromosomes, this, and this happens, and this other DNA gets formed, right? Are we tracking here? I don't want to go any more graphic than this. That's not how a child is produced. Some of you are writing things down. Why are you needing to take notes on this? No, no, no. A child, physical fruit, is the fruit of a loving, intimate encounter between a man and a woman. They get swept up in a moment of loving intimacy, and the fruit of that is a child. In the same way, spiritual fruit is not produced like a recipe. i got to have love. What's the Greek word for love? Agape. I bet if I understood that, I would have love. So I'm going to memorize that word and think about having love all day. Right? It's patience, macro through me up. Oh, I know that word now. I'm totally going to be patient because I can say the Greek word. That's not how those fruits are produced. Spiritual fruit happens by being swept up in a loving, intimate encounter with Jesus, with the gospel. It is as your heart develops a felt sense of the doctrines of the gospel that spiritual fruit begins to pop out of you as naturally as grapes on a grapevine. See? Give you one more insight on this that may help to see that in this passage. Did you notice that fruit in this passage, that fruit is singular? Did you catch that? Not fruits as if they are things that you add, but the whole lot of them. Fruit, singular. Because when you abide in Jesus, watch this, they all grow. That means that when one of these things is growing, but not the others, you got to wonder if it's really fruit. For example, I know people who are very kind, but they have no self-control. That's probably not spiritual growth. That's probably just personality. they got a naturally kind disposition. Because if it were spiritual fruit, all of them would be growing. Make it personal. Boldness is a lot of times considered to be a spiritual fruit. I've been bold since I was six years old. It's just a personality trait. Often wrong, never in doubt. It's just what I am. And a lot of times I confused personality traits like boldness with spiritual maturity. Because when you looked at my life, what you would notice is that, yeah, I was bold for Christ, but I was also very judgmental, very unkind, very self-centered. And see, if it were really spiritual fruit, all those things would be growing in me. So I'm just trying to tell you that whatever 
is happening in your life, it'll be producing all nine of these things. And if there's one growing but not the others, it might be the fact that it's not spiritual fruit. In fact, I would even say it this way. You're only as mature as your weakest fruit. That stings a little bit, doesn't it? You're only as mature as your weakest fruit. That might be an overstatement, but you get the idea. Fruit is singular. Because when the gospel is taking root in your life, all these things grow. Believe it or not. I know that stung, so let me, let me make you feel better. Believe it or not, there's actually some good news in that. You want to know what it is? If fruit is singular. All right, let me give you another analogy. When I was 12 years old, my head and my feet were the same size that they are right now. Okay? And the rest of me was 12, year old, 12 years old size. How did people always encourage me? What did they say? You'll grow into it, right? Don't worry. We'll, we're we're going to see how, we can see already see how big you're going to be because your head's already that size and your feet are already that size. <laughs> You'll grow into it. It'll be okay. And, and so I was able just to kind of, you know, not worry about it. We'll see in the same way if these are all the DNA of what it means to be in Christ, you don't have to be overwhelmed at how little progress you're making. See, because the question is not, am I ever going to overcome this or develop this? The question is simply, when am I going to grow into it? Sanctification is the process of becoming what God has already made you in Christ. Sanctification is just the process of becoming what God's already made you in Christ. She's going to grow into it. Just let it out. The question is not, can I overcome this? But when am I going to grow into it? Last one, real quick, a warning. A warning about a lifelong struggle. Paul is telling you that at every point for the rest of your life, you're going to be in a war. A lifelong to the death struggle between your old sinful nature and your new righteous one. Both of them at every point in your life, watch, are constantly calling you to plant the roots of your soul into them. Into the flesh or into the spirit. At every point in every day, you are making a choice whether to plant the roots of your soul in the flesh, something besides God, or the gospel, God. Which is why Paul tells you that what Christianity, what Christian growth is, is learning to preach the gospel to all the different parts of you. It's like, it's like you, there, there are unevangelized parts of your soul, and you got to send little missionaries out to them to preach the gospel into those sections. We talk about unreached people groups, you got a bunch of them in your heart. Right? And Christian growth is sending missionaries to preach the gospel into those places. That's why when Paul gives you the spiritual armor, remember we studied this together last year in Ephesians? Um, when Paul goes through the spiritual armor, I showed you that every piece that he gave was the gospel, taking the breastplate of righteousness. What's that? That's Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift. Having your loins girded about with truth, what's that? That's the truth of the gospel. Uh, he, he says, uh, take the helmet of salvation. That's obvious. Take the sword of the spirit. What's the spirit and the sword about? It's the gospel. Take the shield of faith. Faith in what? The gospel. Because as the various parts of your life are shrouded in the gospel, you begin to desire what God wants. So preach the gospel to all the unreached people groups in your soul. That's why I gave you that gospel prayer, to pray every day. The bookmark that we've been giving out, you can pick up at your campus if you don't have one. Because I want you to preach the gospel to all parts of you all the time. Because as you bring those parts of your life under, under the dominion of the gospel, that's, that's when you grow. That's why J.C. Ryle, the Puritan, said that the true Christian is known by his constant inner warfare. 
At every moment and every day, you are being faced with a choice of whether or not you're going to put the roots of your soul into the flesh or into the gospel. It's a war. God has a part of this, watch, and you have a part. God's part, you see verse 24, Galatians 5, says you crucify your flesh. God's part of this is to afflict you. God afflicts you, some of you know this, because he tears down an idol that you love, because he knows as he tears it down, you'll take the roots out of it and put it into him. That's why John 15, 2, Jesus said that those that he loves, he prunes. I told you pruning is painful. When you see a bush that's been pruned, it looks like a disaster. Pieces of it laying all over the ground, it looks like it's shredded. But the gardener has just taken out of that person what was killing them. And what God does sometimes, he puts affliction in our lives to take out of us those things that are keeping us from growing in him. That's affliction. God sometimes does the crucifying himself. He crucifies your flesh. You have a part of that. Your part of that is you put to death your sinful nature on a daily basis. And when you have sinful desires, you take the roots out and you put them down over here in the gospel. I'll give you an example. Rather than explain this to you, let me just give you an example some of you identify with. You're a guy, you're a dude, you're walking through the mall. And by you going the other way is just a really hot girl who's dressed totally inappropriately, which the last time I went to the mall was all of them, okay? And as she walks by, you suddenly have this desire, I want to turn around and check her out, right? Now, what do you do at that moment? You say, well, the law is useless. You know, so I could change my heart if I make myself not do it. So I might as well just say, God, why don't you change me with the gospel? But for right now, I don't want to be a Pharisee, so I'm just going to turn around and look. No, no, you don't. That's not what you do. What you do at that moment is you say, God, why is it that I still desire impurity? And you take the roots of your soul up out of that, and you put it to death, and you drive them down into the gospel and say, God, would you show me more about a God who loved me so much and went to a cross to die for my impurity so that I desire what you desire? The gospel's goal is that you desire purity. Think of it like this. There's some sins that I could throw out here right now that almost all of you would find disgusting, right? Child molestation. Just about everybody in here would find that repulsive. You don't need the law to command you not to molest children because you would just never want to do that. The goal of the gospel is that you feel that way about all sins. We're in, not just you lose your attraction to girls, but the idea of impurity becomes disgusting to you. So when pure, impurity is desirous to me, I take my roots out of the flesh and I say, God, boom, and I put them in the gospel and I dwell on the fact that God died to make me pure and that makes me desire what he desires. That's crucifying the flesh and putting my roots in the gospel. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. Every day, every moment of every day, you have that choice. Let me end just by sharing with you something, a, a story of a girl who is here at our church who went through this process. And I share it and we'll be done. But I think this perfectly gives you the picture of what this looks like. Girl says, and I got her permission to share this, I was raped my freshman year of college within the first couple of months by the boy that I was dating. I denied that this happened to myself, and for the rest of the year, I spent my time in a Neverland with the assistance of drugs and alcohol and even worse men. She then talks about going through a time of questioning, asking God why. She got involved in professional counseling therapy. She said, I still woke up even after the counseling every single day with this heavy burden on my heart, and it became obvious that I needed something that even counseling was not giving me. My friend invited me to the summit one Sunday, and I remember walking out the doors and thinking about the sermon for days after that. It was 
the Search for a King series. And much to my shock, you actually said the word rape during the sermon. I went through this process of discovery she talks about until one night she said, I cried out to God on my bed. And that was the last night I've ever spent laying in my bed crying in despair over what happened. Something special happened that night. I prayed to God for forgiveness for what I had done, for the strength to carry on and for his help to get through this. It was the most raw and desperate prayer I'd ever made. I can't explain what happened, but immediately I felt this presence, his presence inside of me. It physically came in and took the burden off my shoulder that I'd been carrying around all that time and I'd never suffered through since, remembering again. I stopped viewing myself as a broken and ruined girl that nobody would ever want and giving myself away to other men to try to feel worthy. I stopped feeling that way because God wanted me. He proved it to me that night. I trusted him and I've left my old lifestyle behind. I dropped the drugs, alcohol, and group of people I've been hanging out with. I don't have any desire to ever live that way again because this new high, the spirit, is much better than any drug has ever given to me. Seeing all those choices I made and the things that happened those couple of years, I stand amazed at God's plan. It was at work and all of what happened to me, even in my rape, because it contributed to a situation where I had to live off campus, something otherwise not allowed at my college. That led me to my roommates. That led me to counseling. That led me to a friend at the summit, then to the summit church, and then to God. That process is happening with some of you right now. And what's happening is the flesh, you're seeing the fruits of it. You've got to make a choice where you're going to put the roots of your soul. And the good news is that Jesus made a way for you to put your roots into him. It's called the gospel. And if you will receive it and if you will follow the way that he has opened up, your life will be transformed into what Paul described. Why don't you bow your heads and let me pray. Father, give us the faith to believe the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.